Hello and welcome. Thank you for listening to The Instant. For those of you that are probably confused that you're listening to a new or different podcast, you're technically not. I've just given the blog, as well as the podcast, of course, a whole new concept, a whole new identity, and of course, a whole new name. So I've changed from Hellenistic Christendom to that of The Instant, something much more basic and easily to uh, communicate. What better way to start off this new sort of concept, this new direction, by way of introducing the longest episode ever conducted on this podcast, something of about two and a half hours, as well as the first interview with Corey Plummer. We're discussing deconstruction, we're talking about anxiety, psychology, Christian theology, Jesus, myths, all kinds of stuff. So I'm excited. I hope you'll enjoy this episode. I hope you have plenty of time to sit down and relax because we're going to be spending a lot of time together. So God bless you, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you. We have um, a lot of things to talk about. I'm going to let him start, of course, by way of introductions, of course, who he is, how we know each other. And uh, yeah, I'll just kind of uh, hand over to him. We'll get right started. So who are you and how do I know you? All right. My name is uh, Corey Plummer. Um, <laughs> what did you say? Plum- I said Plumer. Dang. Plumer. That's okay. Uh, uh, Stephen Dune and I, uh, <laughs> we work together over at uh, Okanola. Um, we've worked together for two plus year, two years now. Two years in August. Two years in August. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, but he got my last name wrong. It's okay. Um, the owner. Um, Some friend. Uh, over there, one of the owners uh, still calls my uh, six-year-old daughter uh, Sparrow, and her name is Sparrow. So no. yeah, it happens. And so yeah, yeah. So that's that's us. That's that's me. I'll um, ask people for recording. So yeah, that's why I'm not, I'm not saying names. <laughs> they know who they are. I think. So we're getting together today and we're talking about, um, I know I mentioned deconstruction. Of course, the floor is open to talk whatever we're talking about. But why is that? What is your background in Christianity if you want to get right into that? Um, and of course, I didn't mean to overstep your introduction, but that's kind of what I was um, going for. I guess. No, we're, we're good. Um, I don't really need that much of an introduction. Nobody knows who I am. So my name is Corey and we work together. I have a daughter named Sparrow. Um, so kind of a little bit about my background. I grew up in the uh, Christian household, if you want to call it that. Um, but I guess it was since birth, I was like engulfed in this Christian culture. Uh, so did I become one or was this kind of born into it? I do believe there was a moment when I made that decision, but I can't really give a clear answer on when that was exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of my you definitely have like a testimony, like a moment of faith kind of thing? Back in the yeah, day. yeah. You know, I mean, it, when, you, when you're raised in something, it's kind of hard to make that exact pivotal moment of this is when I became this or, you know, you just, mm. you know, you're taught that you have to. Yeah. And so you make that, but I mean, I could have been three i could have been seven eleven i mean i don't remember yeah you know i can't exactly say this is so so the actual age that it took place wasn't significant or so much it it doesn't maybe have such a significant identity as to the whole story of your life right as i just i grew up in it okay and um yeah it was just cool so around me what was but you grew up Pentecostal, right? Was that it? Uh, yeah, Assemblies of God. Uh, I grew up in the charismatic Pentecostal Assemblies of God denomination. How, how old were you when you converted or made a, a moment of faith? 
that looked like anything. Right, that, and that's what I'm saying. It was, you know, I grew up in it, you know, from the day I was born. Okay, so, uh, okay. My entire family was, like, in that, yeah. engulfed into that yeah. um, denomination and stuff. So, I was there since. Yeah. Little little baby born. Was, was there anything kind of cringy looking back on it as far as like particular beliefs you picked up or came across or things you learned? Um, I mean <laughs> that, that's a whole <laughs> that's a whole other topic. Um, yeah, I mean I would I would say yes, um, but also I guess it depends on the stage of looking back. Um, and I mean during that time I wouldn't have seen anything. You know, I mean, I can give some examples of where there's some different moments that I look back and I remember thinking, oh, you know, what? this doesn't seem yeah. like it's the best thing. But I didn't question them at those times, you know, or didn't feel I was able to question certain those things uh, deeply. Did you struggle with doubt in a significant way? Like you feel like maybe overtly more... Yeah, yeah, I did. It was a, um, just kind of as I got, you know, grew up, there was just this underlying sense of just, I'm not doing it right. Like, you can Mm. always do better. Mm. Um, It just, it never, nothing ever really felt like good enough, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, To track ahead a little bit, um, you went to seminary. Bible college, right? More or less, so yes. Okay, you didn't, but you didn't finish. Kind of that was the experience. correct. Yeah. So, so basically, so my time in seminary college, it was a little different. Um, I did study through Evangel University, which is in Springfield, Missouri. Uh, that was via online while doing a program in Los Angeles called Master's Commission. If you're familiar. Um, also, prior to that, I was one of the youth leaders in my local local quote mega end quote church where i also did some minor studies uh, and actually in high school my senior thesis was titled um missions to muslims uh just mm-hmm. trying to make the point that i was enveloped in this form uh in this uh basically since day one yeah so you had a more missional kind of mind you feel like, like kind of a go out well see as i as a things progressed or changed as i uh grew up like when i was a kid um I wanted to be a kids pastor or, you know, cause I wanted to basically, and we'll get into that. I would assume that I wanted to be a pastor since I was like, um, roughly about eight or nine years old. Oh, really? Yeah. And as I got older, um, as a kid, I was really into things like magic, like magic tricks, card tricks. Like it just, it, that world fascinated me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to be a, uh, a children's pastor um, and then at one point I was like, you know, maybe I'll be a youth, a youth leader. Um, and then it kind of formed into a missionary to like India, the Middle East and Africa, where the, the, what were deemed in the missional world as the unreachables were, it was like the, like the hardest place to get to. I was like, oh, that's like, like the most dangerous. And that sounded really, really right, exciting. Right. That, that kind of, um, grabbed me um but i never i never wanted to be like a senior pastor i never really wanted to deal with adults as a pastor (laughs) as a pastor or still to this day um (laughs) i understand that yeah people probably would yeah um no why do you so why do you think that's a a, an attractive thing 
among evangelical Christianity. I mean, at least I remember as well. Like, I remember saying at, like, 17, like, I want to be dead by the time I'm 30. Like, being a martyr wow, man. seemed like a cool thing. Like, what what is that, zealous, that zealotry about? Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, when when you are raised in a faith or part of a faith where your lead character in the story, uh, Jesus, is crucified in his early, you know, mid-30s, um, and then everybody else that follows, you know, you have Stephen, you know, the first martyr, you know, you have peter you have paul you have all these different individuals i don't you know i know they were a lot older but there was just this emphasis i feel like put on to that's a possibility that if you take on this role there's a possibility especially if you're going somewhere's dangerous that your martyrdom or your faith could happen very early on and you kind of took that with a sense of pride yeah um do you think so given that that's i don't know if i I would probably say, given that that's an essential feature of Christianity, that suffering, um, there's always danger lurking, if you will, amidst the faith. Do you think that there's a way in which um, children ought to be slowly brought into the faith, or there's a way in which we have to kind of present the faith in a, not in a diluted way, but something smaller um, that doesn't really incorporate the crucifixion aspect? The, well, that's a that's a very interesting thing because I mean, as a as a dad to a six year old daughter, um, you guys have religious conversations. We do, we do. Um, it's not something that I am really keen. Like, it's not something that we have deep conversations about because she's six. <laughs> but I mean, her she's in kindergarten now. Her previous preschool VPK was a Christian place and stuff like that, and so. You know, she's brought up the idea of, of God and stuff like that and talked about, you know, she'll ask questions like, why did God create this car? I'm like, well, you know, so we have to talk about that. And that brings up a very, you know, a, a discussion about the idea of God and that you try to explain to a six-year-old um, as best as you can. Yeah. I mean, I'm 34 and I'm still a wrestle. Um <laughs> Yeah, so I don't know if that answers no, the yeah, question. Yeah, no, no, of course. Um, do you find the way in which she asks you questions that has that given you a different perspective on spirituality and how you approach those kinds of things? Or not necessarily the way that she or what she asks, but just more on the ex- like her existing mm. um, has kind of sh- has been a big shift in my perspective and how I approach things. Yeah. At least from how I was raised and my interaction with her, mm-hmm. um, and and what I want to pass to her. Okay. Yeah. So. Okay. Um. So I, I thought we could just go ahead and get to a set of questions. Um, the first one I had here in particular. I mean, so the first one I, I had here was my notes say one prominent theologian, A. W. Totzer. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Uh, Okay, okay, cool. Um, So he said that one of the most important things, or probably uh, the most important thing about a person is what they think about God. Uh, So the question I had was, is there any way, or is there a way in which God thinking, or having a God consciousness in your day-to-day living, not specifically your day-to-day, but having God consciousness in your day-to-day living is still significant? I would say, yeah, more than anything with 
you, you grow up with these beliefs, these ideas, these rights and wrongs. I mean, they're ingrained in you. I held them. I fought them. I defended them. Um, and just because I wrestle with these doesn't mean the thoughts of old have just evaporated completely. Mm. Um, I, I'd say this. I'd have a discussion with people about God, that the name God is heavy, especially in the scientific world. I get that. For centuries, uh, Christians have been... Um, been in uh, full denial of mostly anything that science has uh, proven with empirical data um, over and over. The name God has been used to cause harm, uh, damn others to health, start wars, to strip women and people of different ethnicities of their human rights. The name has been used to treat the earth with disregard. I mean, the list could go on. So it's uh, easy, I believe, to see why the name God or the idea of God is so heavy. But I'd like to, but I like to think of God um, in two different realms of thinking, if I could simplify it that easily. The first being the objective idea of God or being out there somewhere outside of time, space, etc. Uh, this is the God that we are mostly referring to when we argue this or that about God. When science and Christianity fight or religion, this is the God that has been proved or um, that is being proved or disproved. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a fun but honestly never-ending battle, fun nonetheless, if you're crazy like myself and are up for that kind of battle. Yeah. Uh, that's one hand. On the other hand, you have God as a subjective idea. This isn't something that can be proved or disproved through science, data, empiricism, doctrine, theology, or scriptures. It's personal. It's an experience, an encounter, and I think most wars um, and so on are actually caused because we can't separate these two ideas of God. We are essentially saying this is my personal experience of God or what I believe about God or not about God. Therefore, it proves or disproves the objective idea of God. We are essentially saying this is my, sorry, sorry, of course, this is a simplification. I get this, um, gets into the question of what God is then. Um, Paul Tillich, uh, if you're familiar with him, uh, the philosopher and influential theologian of the 20th century, um, writes of this idea of of God above God in order to transcend theism. Mm -hmm. It transcends this idea of objective and subjective. It includes them, but it doesn't just stop there. I think most of us just stop at this idea of objective or subjective and don't know how to make that separation. Um, There is a quote, and I'm sorry if I'm misquoting as I don't know the exact source. I believe I read it via a book by Peter Rollins. Mm. Uh, I want to say the original uh, name. uh, Original was Thomas Aquinas. Nevertheless, the quote is along the lines of God does not exist, but is existence itself. Is that, is that, was that Thomas Aquinas? Uh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so for something to be observable, something must be observable to say it exists. To say God is existence then encompasses everything. What is existence? It's faith, it's doubts, it's joys, it's pain, it's theism, it's atheism, it's science, it's everything. It's the full experience. Some of those things may be off and wrong, but existence, life still allows them. Life isn't like your thinking is wrong, it can't be included hey, you're an asshole, you can't exist. I think I try to live in the realm of uh, that being and it allows me to grow and be corrected. In a yeah. sense of, if, if all that makes sense yeah. uh, to you. No, of course. I mean, so do you think that there's a way in which, um, this is one of my questions as well, do you think it's the case that people could have mistaken beliefs about God? Of course, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, more, yeah. So if you were in a conversation with someone talking about God, you might find yourself doing this kind of corrective activity. I would have to, you want to, like growing up, and this goes back to this idea of saying that like, just because 
I wrestle with thoughts doesn't mean that the thoughts have just completely evaporated. Um, I, I find myself in that realm sometimes when I'm wrestling and then I have to realize that I have to step back and realize that, oh, there is the objective, there's the subjective, there's the idea of God beyond God, beyond theism, and that when you start trying to prove or disprove, you're getting caught up in those nuances of, of things, you know, so... Um, it's better to kind of step back and, and, and listen yeah. and realize, okay, this person, myself included, has these ideas, but if I'm really listening and I'm looking at it from a, uh, an outside observer, you'd, you'd see that these are more subjective ideas that are being penned on an objective, uh, an objective knowing. Right, right. Now, this may be a kind of complicated question, but it just kind of popped in my head to ask. But I don't know if you're familiar with uh, apophatic theology. So it's this idea that all of our language about God is uh, negative. Like we don't have any positive thoughts or descriptions about God. Yes. So like ra we, instead of saying that, you know, um, God is invisible, we might say God doesn't have a body. Mm -hmm. I mean, so is there a way in which you would say that really all of our knowledge or the way we, should, we can speak about God, we can't know anything about him in himself? if you will, because maybe we can get to this ground of being, um, this God above God. But I think when we try to penetrate as to the, as to what that ground is, right. there's kind of, there's a way in which we fall short. Right. Okay. So yeah, this gets into the idea of um, Taoism, mm -hmm. the, the quote of what you say it is ultimate Tao mm -hmm. is no longer Tao. And it's the same kind of, whatever you say is God. Is no longer God. The, the, the moment that you give a definite this is what it is, it removes mm. all, all, the ultimate. Okay. Um, mm. So, so yeah. Mm. So would you? So any any descriptions um, or any attempts to describe God and as a particular this or that, um, you, they fall short. They all collapse um, meaningfully. How do you, you would say? I would say overall, yes. Not fully because you need, as humans, uh, we live in a world of metaphors and symbols and stories. Mm. Um, so it's us at best trying to understand mm. ultimate reality mm. the best way. So I wouldn't say it completely falls short, but I at see. the same time it does mm. because mm. we're limited and what we can fully know, I would, I would, I would say. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, ooh. So the next question I had was: In the West, a lot of us modern American Christians tend to be preoccupied with the notion of a distinction between spirituality and secularism. Um, particularly, I'm, I think I'm getting that particular point from Charles Taylor. He wrote a book called The Secular Age, okay. where in a, in the modern world we tend to make that sharp distinction between here's the religious, here's the secular. Um, that may not so much be like a, a, um, a modern American thing, but definitely in the religious mindset, for example. There's us and them. Um, is there a way in which you think that's a viable distinction? Is that, a, is that a real distinction for what's going on in the world today? I wrestle with this a lot because um, there's a lot of things or some things that... I wrestle with that are hard for me to grasp, to understand, to accept. Um, that 
would be deemed from the Christian culture um, as worldly and secular and wrong. Mm. And though I've veered away a lot, some from that upbringing, uh, there's still pivotal points that make sense to me about why I could see this being overtly wrong or not good. Yeah. Um, but I mean, if, but then also at the same time, maybe that comes from the idea that we grew, I grew up and we, you know, probably you too, in this, this culture that did separate everything. So, uh, music, sex, um, anything yeah. that wasn't about what we say is the right thing, yeah. um, was just deemed unholy and hellish and just wrong. And we never got a, I don't think a good view yeah. of it. You know, it kind of, um, demonized yeah. everything. And so mm. I know in the certain parts of the, like the Jewish culture, there's this idea of that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it is his. This idea that there is no separation. There is that everything is spiritual, that everything um, and something that may feel wrong on the surface level, if you take away those layers, it could actually be pointing to something that needs to be heard and said. You know, and sometimes those things uh, can look really, really bad from the outsider you know if you're if you're a christian then anything that's like in the secular world deem it that the worldly can yeah. all be like oh my gosh that's the worst but things that need to be made uh to, that have a point can can look like that it can be scary because we don't understand it we don't understand we're seeing these surface level level things instead of stripping away the layers and say oh like okay yeah maybe culture at large worldly culture has a sec you know a huge <laughs> a huge thing with sexualization and sexualizing everything but maybe that's more because there has been such a damnation put on mm. something that is just natural and and and, and human and yeah. um it was just what these things because it felt good was just called bad yeah you know and so this is like an over yes an over extreme to balance out yeah, yeah. uh thanks yeah. well that's that's what kind of scares me because i think this 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 distinction can be taken up as a kind of ammunition um in that the distinction is more becomes about content so it, for example it's strange to me that something all of a sudden doesn't become secular or worldly when all of a sudden there's a christian kind of message behind it um christian television shows christian brands of clothes or you know shoes um even a Christian approach to sex. There's a way in which we just baptize the thing which doesn't have uh, the 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 presently Christian, and then we just kind of give it that. And that's that's the way in which I think if there is a secular distinction, that's the way in which it's deepened. Yeah. Um, because Christians think, well, if we have eminence in the world, if we're just there, then yeah. we, we've done our job. You know. Um. No, it's, it's funny because today uh, my girlfriend and I we um we got lunch. And as we were walking into uh, the restaurant, we actually had lunch at Okandola, um, where Stephen uh, Dune and I work. Uh, there was a song by um, 
John Mayer, uh, Your Body is a Wonderland. Mm. I think that's the name of it. I, I don't know <laughs> John Mayer. Um, but it was on, and when we were in the car, where were we at? Oh, we were at the in the car, and I started singing that song. Who can say that? <laughs> or whatever it is. And Idiot. she's like, yeah, yeah she's like, um, when I was in preschool, they used to play that song to put us to sleep. Right. So when we, uh, so she had just said that we got out of the car, we started walking into the restaurant and then the body is a wonderland song came on and I made the joke of, Oh, my Sunday school used to, uh, play this when I was an infant at church to put me to sleep. She's like, wait, the song about John Mayer. I was like, yeah, it's about Jesus. And she's like, no, it's not. It's about, um, premarital sex. Like him having premarital sex with a woman. I'm like, no, it's about Jesus. She's like, no, I was like, Look, you don't understand. We we can Christianize anything that we want to. <laughs> I was like, I'm just joking, but I was like, but it was funny that you made that point because we were. I literally made that like joke earlier. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I know. Jesus, Jesus' body is a wonderland while he's hanging up there on the cross. She's like, that's not what that means. I'm like, no, in the Christian world, you can Christianize anything. Oh yeah, but if, yeah, because if you've seen certain songs like love songs, where if you just change the words even just a little bit, even put Jesus in that, it. It'll sometimes fit. Yeah. It'd be a little weird, but. Yeah. Uh, one of the churches that I went to in L.A., um, I mean, I grew up in this, you know, church that, like, if it, if it wasn't Christian, if it didn't say Jesus, it was bad. Um, but the church in L.A., um, which was the L.A. Dream Center, um, if you're familiar with uh, the Assemblies of God, you're probably familiar with, like, Tommy and Matthew Barnett. Um, they're kind of big names in that world. I should, but I feel like um, I don't. But they uh, they would play like Journey, like don't stop believing, like during the worship service and stuff like that. Um, and it was always like, oh, that's weird. But they made it like it worked. Like it's just okay. What so what was what was Christian culture like in L.A.? I hear we're over here in the East Coast in Florida. I just hear horror stories coming out of California Christianity. Uh, I can't speak for the culture over there at large i can only speak for my own experience so i don't i can't even i can't step into that realm um but this was a mega church that you were going to correct okay. yes um i do know that uh, what's the big miracle school that's over there like church when you say miracle school what does that mean like where people are taught and trained to do like miracles and yeah, a big, big one over there. Um, Bethel, Bethel. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I want to say Bethel. Yeah, they're they're there. Um, all right, that which is fascinating because I remember. I'm thinking like a Hogwarts or something. <laughs> I mean, basically, magic school, miracle school, miracle school. Um, never seen any of the Harry Potters. Wow, really? Yeah, you never. Allowed to so growing up, I wasn't allowed to. Um, that's not the case anymore as I'm an adult, but I just, I've, I haven't had like, I want to sit down and watch them. There's just so many of them. It's like 12 or something. Yeah. I just, I have to be able to sit down and watch them. My daughter, uh, my six year old daughter has seen more than I have. Oh, Harry Potter. Yeah. I've never seen Lord of the Rings. I love Lord of the Rings. They're good. <laughs> I've only seen the three. I haven't seen like any of the Hobbit ones or, oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Nah. So. I need to get to it. I'm kind of upset about it. But. Yeah. Sorry, you went to you didn't go to Bethel though. No, no, but no. Just it, it reminded me of a story when you asked about that. That there was this uh, incident that happened. 
two years ago uh, of the music pastor and her husband, uh, <coughs> their uh, two-year-old, two-and-a-half-year-old passing away. And there was this whole thing all over social media about them and everybody in the church praying that she be resurrected. Mm. Um, and this went on for a very, very long time, um, for months, where just they all came together and there's outposts and, and there's people posting, we believe that God's going to raise her from the dead and uh, this or that. So you have that. <laughs> so, which is which is not, you know, which isn't, I get it. I get it. Like I have a daughter. I love my daughter more than anything. Like, yeah. uh, and... I would want that. I would want her to come back alive. But do you think that that's a way in which they're kind of sidestepping the grief kind of thing? Or? That I think there's a way that they're sidestepping the grief as well as making God the sense of a magical genie. Um, and then when – and then my issue is that when this is not done – None of these individuals, you, you have these, you'll have two different camps. You'll have just one camp that's just like, okay, well, that's weird. So I don't believe this anymore because I really did believe it. Um, and they just throw out the whole thing. Yeah. Or you have this other group that, which is just going to be like, almost just kind of just like, will kind of twist and be like, well, yeah, God could have, but he decided not to. Like, we really believe that God will. Because we have to have faith the size of a mustard seed, and that can move a mountain. And then this is our mountain. But if this mountain doesn't get moved, we're just going to be like, okay, well, this, instead of just looking at it and be like, you know what? Maybe our theology is just a little jacked up. Mm. Maybe this concept and idea that we have of God yeah. um, is just a little, a little fickle. Yeah. Would you say it's at, maybe not at root, but primarily a theological problem? Because I mean, it may not be at root, but it seems like doctrine goes along. Yeah, yeah, doctrine, uh, theology, but just an ingrained doctrine. Yeah, um, for sure. That that doctrine. I mean, that, there's a sense of theology within you. There's a sense of doctrine that says that you're not allowed to question if you if you believe this. If you're if you're a pastor, or you're and and you never look at you don't say that when you're in it. You don't say, well, if my pastor says this, or if my theology says this, or if this says this. It's just you're taught. That this is scripture, this is doctrine, this is theology, and that uh, Reverend Pastor Father so and so up there is a spokesperson for this all knowing thing, mm -hmm. and what they say is this direct message from all knowing. Yeah. And if you question that, if you if you doubt that, you're not doubting the pastor, you're not doubting uh, that sermon, you're doubting. God, you're doubting like the ultimate source of of knowing, of being. Um, mm -hmm. You're and and there are consequences to that. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any thoughts on paganism today? Does paganism look like something today? Is that still a thing? The flying spaghetti monster. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I think it might be more of a historical question. You know, I think, for example, I guess to provide a Particular example, um, Camille Harris. 
I can't believe I'm forgetting her name. No, <laughs> not that one. Uh, it's it's a certain feminist um, social critic. She wrote a book called uh, The Persona of Sex, something like that. I can't believe I'm forgetting her name because she's one of my favorites. But anyway, um, she talks about how Christianity didn't actually win against paganism in the West, that there's actually three major epics that still ensued after the introduction of you know the Christian religion. So she talks about – oh, you're going you're gonna to watch a video right now? No. <laughs> Sorry, I was trying to figure out who – uh, who this Camille is, and apparently I was watching a video about how to connect a Bluetooth speaker to your um, mm. thing. I was like, that, yeah, that has to be a, a separate But uh, Camille Paglia just came to mind. Is his name of this feminist um, social critic. I'm going to type in. Pa yep, Camille Paglia. She wrote books, one of, Sexual Persona, thank you. Great book that you need to check out. She writes a lot of books on sex and art. Anyway, she says there's three major epics of by which paganism kind of not was championed in the West, but kind of had resurgences. So she talks about, um, you know, the, the Renaissance, the sort of Dionysian art of the, you know, romantic kind of period a little shortly after. And then she talks about Hollywood as well and how that kind of has a sort of paganism uh, today. Is there a way in which uh, Americans, even though they may not have that sense of religiosity, you know, as maybe Europe did some time ago, but there's a way in which paganism still permeates um, a sense in which – there's an abandonment of religion, but an emphasis on spirituality. I don't know how you would kind of frame that question or frame the problem. I don't know if that makes sense. So essentially you're asking, is there a way that paganism is still um, found in modern day, even if you don't technically use the term paganism? Yeah. yeah. Um, if you see it in Christian or non-Christian circles. If not, again, I don't have to. I don't have to fish it out of you. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to think because I'm. I just. I'm looking up the definition because I'm like, I'm not typically talking about the word paganism, um, but according to uh, Wikipedia, which is always oh, actual, um, it's is a term first used uh, in the fourth century by early Christians for people in the Roman Empire who practiced polytheism. Or ethnic religions other than Judaism. Hmm. Um, so basically saying that, yeah, these people practice other religions and that anything that was outside of Christianity was, was pagan. Yeah. Um, so I would say, yeah. I mean, if, if you're going to look at it in, in, in that term, yeah. uh, it, it would say, yeah, th that from that loose definition, yeah. that it is still found. Yeah, your music playing. Hey, man. Every day. Every day. Every day. <laughs> Bumping outside, man. Yeah, I love, love it. it here. Yeah, um, where where I live at, it's it's two a.m. <laughs> two a.m. That's the weekends. It's pretty quiet no. here, actually. Oh, uh, for you on the weekends? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's no. every for me. It's it's every day. Two a.m. No. Big trucks. Big <laughs> pickup trucks. Nah. Uh, with systems. No. See, I got, I got lowriders that blare. I think they make this music themselves. That's what kills me. Like, they'll remix, like, weird songs, like Bruno Mars. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard, uh, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Chopping Screwed. Uh-huh. Yeah, they Chopping Screwed a Bruno Mars song. Oh, that's great. Like, slow down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Love it. That was, being from Virginia, that was, like, one thing. That was a culture shock. Oh, I really? lived down here in Florida. <laughs> I'm like, huh. Interesting. <laughs> um, Not in a bad way, just saying, like, it's just... Oh, you no. know, so. oh, dude. Uh, I love DJ Screw, one of my favorite rappers. Um, I don't know who that is. 
Texas rap team died a long time ago. Uh-huh. Um, anyway, but um, I guess just to finish on the, on the paganism point. So I mentioned earlier how like whenever we have Christian content, we kind of baptize it, and we just kind of say, "Oh, now you're now you have a Christian message to you." Yeah. I think there's a way in which uh, a lot of things in the American experience. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to get into a whole lot because it's all now. But um, instead of a baptism, it's, it's a kind of divinization, if you will. Right. I, th- I think a lot of the times of like movies, the Marvel sort of phenomenon, if you will. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. <laughs> I think these Marvel heroes, in a kind of way, serve something like the, uh, the gods of, of the Roman Empire. Yeah, this thing has a mind of its own. This mic. Mic has a mind of its own. Yeah. So if I'm going to write a review of this, I'm going to trash it. <laughs> it's actually no, kind of nice. Uh, I mean, if it stayed in place, I don't know if there was like a screw. I know. I feel like we're missing something, but I don't know. I we don't got know. a new microphone, uh, boom arm. I don't know what to call this. A boom arm. Boom arm. It's called a boom arm now. Boom. Um, and uh, yeah, we read the instructions, and this is what we got, and it keeps moving on us, but you can't tell, so it doesn't matter. Um, so the next, <laughs> que- <laughs> the next question I had, um, I guess to go into section two regarding the deconstruction phenomenon. Um, I mean, like I said, there's anything you want to comment on with respect to that. I don't. Is it justifiable to put you under that phenomenon? Like, have you deconstructed? Uh, we moved on away from paganism to deconstruct. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> sorry. Um, <sighs> yes, but it's not been a recent thing. Okay. If that helps, because I feel like it's easy to be like. And maybe that's where the uh, Enneagram 4 of I want to be different comes out. Mm. Where the question is uh, that you have posted here, would you describe yourself as part of this recent phenomenon? Um, Yes, but I want to clearly distinguish and set apart my uniqueness (laughs) Mm. Uh, to... um, rub my ego uh, a little bit um, and say, no, this is something that happened um, probably about 14 years ago. Wow. Yeah, about 2007, when I was in LA. Dang. I was I was 13? Christianity wasn't even on my mind. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Just to end. <laughs> right on. The next question I had was, why do you think the wave of deconstruction has gathered significant attention today? It keeps popping up in the news. Pastors keep talking about it, of trying to talk about ways you can avoid it, challenge it. Yeah, I mean, it just goes back into um, our our talk on secularism and and spirituality, worldlyism. Um, that when something is uh, continually deemed wrong or, or right um, for so long and that any sense of opposition is just pushed aside and is not fully embraced and anything that is fully that is embraced um, is Christianized mm. you know it's so we may be like oh well we're accepting this but we're gonna find a way to um, make it Christianese, mm. you know, yeah, yeah. that's our way of embracing it instead of actually embrace, except looking at it, right? It's it's a, yeah. a really weird, you know, thing. It's equivalent of just being like, yeah, I accept this person, um, but you just 
have all of your clothes on them and make them listen to what you want and stuff like that. Like you're like, oh yeah, accept my child, but she just <clears throat> she only likes the things that I like. And yeah, you know, are you really accepting your that child or that person, or are you just making them a clone of you? Yeah. Um. So with with the, the aspect of deconstructionism, I think it's gained this um this this attention uh today because it's been something that the questions the doubts the the not knowing are things that i think plague people mm. uh that are very very honest things that we have and they've been pushed aside they've been uh they've been uh demonized uh so to say and once again, you just have this extreme yeah. of things happening so that there can be a balance mm. that winds up happening. But because we're so scared of that, because we're so scared of the things that we do not understand, mm. we push it away. Instead of look, or see it on the surface, instead of looking at what it's actually pointing to. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, um, you know, pa uh, Pascal made a really good point where he said that if you're not repenting of your idea of God every five years, then you're not making any real significant progress. So I, I think there's a way in which I see deconstruction as a possibility for encouragement, as a kind of opportunity from repenting from old, kind of just old views of God. I don't want to say old. I just mean the sense that, like, you know, every generation, every new age, every in new individual has the task of life set upon themselves, so they can't take upon what was previous or behind them. And so I, whenever I think that millennial Christians, particularly the younger generation, I don't want to just confine the millennials, but whenever they are brought up in kind of that, again, I don't want to say old style Christianity, but it's a Christianity of their fathers, mm -hmm. and they kind of rebel against it. And I think there's a way in which freedom kind of turns on its head. So this suppression, this demonizing that they've experienced in you know their lives from all these walks of life. You know they can't go. It's like 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 in the Lion King. You know, here's your domain, but that black stuff over there. Don't don't look at that. And so they experience freedom by way of really experiencing that dark stuff. You know, Carl Jung talked about the shadow. Mm -hmm. So whenever they they I think explore the unconscious and they see they see wow freedom actually resides in that in that dark stuff. Over yeah. There. You know I need to expand my horizon. I mean, that's, I think that's just one, it's a possibility. Not people, not everybody goes that route. Right. I don't, I don't think that, I mean, it's, it's what, uh, St. John of the Cross, um, mm. called the dark night of the soul. Mm. It's this, you know, uh, one must pass through the dark night of the soul in order to find God, Yeah. you know, which is a very interesting concept because if you grow up in this idea that I know what God is, um, then it's saying that like this dark night um then you come to know god like oh well, what the hell did i know before you know yeah, yeah. um then i think that's you know part of my my deconstruction um yeah of of where i'm at yeah yeah is, is, is that dark night yeah um i was reading through him recently he actually said something very beautiful about because before you pass through the dark night of the soul there's the dark night of the senses mm -hmm. and he gave this beautiful imagery of you know, whenever you're in night, it's, you know, 
darkness falls. But then again, what you notice is that moonlight kind of falls on the things around mm-hmm. you. And instead of kind of like the sharpness and jagged edges of, of the things you see in sunlight, things kind of have a softness about them or kind of roundedness um, and attractability under moonlight with which it doesn't have in the daytime. Right. So passing through that kind of dark night of the senses is what provides access to into that dark night of the soul. So it's that yeah. process of, of turning inward. Right. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a sense of, it's a, it's a death and resurrection of mm. sorts, mm. Uh, of old ideas to new ideas, of old beliefs to new beliefs, of um, what I know, what I'm definite about. Yeah. Uh, to what? To, oh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> it, it's that that transition, and and it's you know you find yourself at different places. Um, you know, I quoted um, or mentioned Peter Rollins earlier. But in uh, one of his books, he talks about this, uh, on that aspect of Dark Knight of the Soul, he talks about um, the transition that Jesus went through. Mm -hmm. Um, And that here you have Jesus on the cross and, uh, you know, death. Mm -hmm. And um, he talks about this idea of God... um, denying god yeah my god my god why did you forsake me he talked about in that moment he became atheist mm-hmm. um god was god was not there for him and in, in his experience and you know um and then he talks about this idea of um the black saturday of of being in that tomb and that nothingness and that numbness and that just death and then there was the resurrection um the new light but it's there, there is this, 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 this really thing where, like, within Christianity, we're said um, to live as Christ is to die as gain. Um, I, I, I'm crucified with Christ. If you know, I'm resurrected with Christ. But we just there's that that pivotal like in between moment that we just we just we don't we run from, and it's almost like aspect of deconstructionism is taken on that black saturday that's just been ignored for so long wow um and it's difficult because you can think you're going through transformation you can i mean and we all do but if you're not aware and paying attention and saying what is this teaching me um it's easy to miss your black Saturday, unless something really, really happens, like as it did for me 14 years ago, yeah. and I still am at that. Um, I'm still in that in that mode um, where, like, unless there's something that just shakes you, yeah. you can miss it, um, and and you're and and you will. Um, feel like you have the same ideas and beliefs um, or completely just throw them all out because you don't because you're never taught how to look at that dark night of the soul or to look at that black Saturday as the process and that when you go through that um, your ideas and your thoughts and your beliefs are going to change and that's okay mm-hmm. that the idea that you had of God 
um, is going to change. And that may, and that, uh, sometimes that, that can be for the better, but sometimes that's going to be, now I have no idea mm. what God is or who God is. And one day I believe, and the other day I'm like, I don't believe at all. And one day, you know, everything makes sense, and the next day nothing makes sense, mm. you know. But that's where it goes back to the existence, that it, it, existence encompasses all effect. Mm. It doesn't. It doesn't push it away. Yeah. It Maybe hard, but yeah. it, it it embraces that. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you said that really well. Um, so, given that there is a, a Black Saturday, um, deconstruction may be a part of that process. Is there, is there a Sunday morning, kind of thing? Um, early like Sunday morning. <laughs> you know, what I mean? is there like a is there a, is there a resurrection possible? Is there, there has to be. There has. I mean, that's life. Mm-hmm. I mean, there 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 is a. I mean, move away from the aspect of, of Christianity. And it, it's very easy. And, uh, you know, if somebody was outside of Christianity listening to this, they get caught on the jargon of what's being discussed here. Oh, mm. you know, he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus, you know, or the death and resurrection of Jesus, you know. Uh, they're talking about God. God's not real. Uh, Jesus isn't real. You know, this is all mythical. Um, but if you look at it as Joseph Campbell spoke about, you know, the, the power of myth, yeah. uh, and the story that it, you know, that it says there, if you look around, there's death and resurrection all around us, you know, the seasons you have, you have the four seasons that there's death and resurrection and, and a, a season of time, uh, or, you know, um, and so the story of Jesus, I think is pointing to something that happened. You look at evolution. Mm. Um, there is a death there is a process of things changing um, and I'm not going to sit here and speak on how that process works or you know what that looks like but we can say that in order for something um, that is to evolve and need, there has to be some death yeah. uh, of some sorts for life to go one there has to be that cycle so yeah, there's always, you know, some type of Sunday morning. But if you're lost in the death and the resurrection and missing the middle part, mm. or trying okay. to rush it, you will miss it. Yeah, I think that's actually a really great point you brought up. Because um, I was going to ask you that question, but you brought Joseph Campbell, which I thought Joseph Campbell, which I thought was perfect. So do you think that the way in which this this death and resurrection process I use that word intentionally, um, is kind of just a symbolic mythic structure that even Jesus, when, you know, historical details aside, that he himself falls under. It's not as if that event in history was something by which we participate in, you know, by way of a spiritual approximation. Well, I mean, that, that, that's, a, <laughs> that's, a, that's a very... Um... Because it seems like that Jesus falls under that stuff. Right, right, right. right. He, he's not the so, one at the top. Right. So it, they're growing up. God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and they're all real, and this is just facts, and this is just truth, and anything that denies that is just evil and bad mm. um, until we Christianize it, as we've talked about. Um, and if you don't believe this, you're going to burn hell forever. 
Um, so there's a lot put on it. You better believe this. Mm. Um, but then you start looking at other things. You look at uh, other stories that existed before the time of Jesus. Mm. Uh, Dionysus, uh, the wine god who had 12 followers and apparently was born of a virgin birth and um, died and resurrected according to the seasons. Uh, course you know um so you have these different cultural gods um that existed um and i don't remember who it is you probably know who said that these stories were put there by satan um prior to jesus to distract from what the actual truth was going to be yeah do you remember who that was i i know exactly that claim but it's it's escaping me i want to say it may have been saint augustine i or even going back to thomas aquinas who basically it definitely sounds like an early church father kind of claim yeah you know um yes so um so that that that's a that's a very very tough thing for me because there is a a a um what's the word that i want to use there is a a core to christianity about mm-hmm. death and resurrection mm-hmm. like it, there's no denying that this concept uh physical uh real not real um is a very 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 core message mm-hmm. Uh, doctrine theology of, of the faith um i don't think you can have christianity without this i think it's, it's so core um mm. but that's but to answer your question does the story of jesus fall under this idea this this mythic um story of resurrection to an extent yes which is not to say that it's not possible that that could have happened um and i know that's going to throw people off because um, that's not something that does happen um, <laughs> when you're looking at things from the physical realm um, but I'm not here to claim I know how life works uh, beyond what we know yeah. um, but I, um, I think more importantly though and this is where uh, the transition for me is is what does it matter at the end of the day if you believe and if if jesus if okay let's start here let's say jesus did physically resurrect from the dead and jesus did physically die and resurrect and deny and 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 overcame the grave and all the stuff that we're taught yeah let's say he did but while he lived he was just an asshole like he was just you know, if I can use that term in your podcast. Um, sorry, anybody. Um, if he went around treating people uh, and women and people that were different than him and different religion and, and different thought process, um, if he went around treating them the way that a lot of Christians treat people that are different than them and yeah. don't believe, then I would say, well, what does it matter if he resurrected? Like, mm. so, yeah, let's just say he did. Like, let's just go with the, the story that says, yeah, he want, we know he did. Like, we'll just, we're going to play with that. But if his whole entire life did not speak of, 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 of 
kindness and grace and mercy and love and forgiveness and gratitude and all those things, then at the end of the day, why does it matter if he dead? Like, so then that raises the question and leads into the question of personally, if you do believe these things, but they're not actually making you better as a person, mm-hmm. more loving and 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 and, and uh, forgiving and understanding and um, then then what's it matter if you if there's not a resurrection that's taking place inside of you? Mm. Now you're just using this idea of beliefs to just protect yourself from so that you can feel secure and whatever you want to feel secure in yeah you know the the resurrection and the death of resurrection the story at large i believe should push you yeah to question the way that you interact and that is on every realm that is whether you're conservative if you're progressive like wherever you fall at uh that should push you to run towards your dark night that transformation um, and not away from it. I think one to translate it back um, is there a way in which, the, okay, let's say that resurrection did actually happen, it was a historical event. Mm-hmm. Is it, would, are you somewhat indirectly, implicitly saying that because that reality, it's almost as if it's not really lived out in people's lives, that it prompts you to say, um, Okay, well, what then does it exactly matter if Jesus did and said such and such and such and such? Um, because Christians aren't even orienting themselves in a way. Not, not, not even, not even that, but more or less so that. <laughs> Sorry, we got cut off, so we're just going to try and do that question again. Um, maybe another way to approach it, because I think that that's a strange kind of question. Um, because the, the, the way in which I would react to that statement you made before is that I think that if Jesus actually rose from the dead, but he had such a character where he was, you know, a jerk, he was an asshole, I think that that's actually, a, it's a kind of existential, it's like a contradiction, an existence contradiction. Because if Jesus, his fulfillment in being raised from the dead was because he lived a perfect life. So it's almost as if he couldn't be an asshole. Um, he might have been interpreted that way from someone who is interact. I'm sure you know people that hated him would have. They probably said all kinds of explicitives. But I think as to his actual character, um, his resurrecting from the dead was a kind of assurance that his character was perfect. Okay. Yeah. So, but then that still raises the question of what about the stories that came before of their death and resurrection as well, Dionysus, where it's like all these different. These individuals that are pre-Jesus that have death and resurrection stories. I don't know enough about their lives or that religion to, and it clearly hasn't carried on for this long. Says the, yeah, yeah. yeah, for it to make that big of a difference. Um, but I don't know if necessarily his perfectionism is the out outweight of why he would have been resurrected. Mm. I could see how you can make that case, but at the end of the day, I guess I'm saying like, I'm not trying to make a case of I see, yeah. of whether there is or isn't a physical resurrection. If there is or isn't a, a God that exists out there or 
does or does not exist. Um, like I said, going back, that is a, a battle that uh, is fun, and I'm so uh-huh. glad to partake on, but it's an uphill battle yeah. that just is not <laughs> going to be solved. You know, and everybody from either side just have their definite of this is what it is. There is, there isn't. I know, I, you know, I know there is, I know there isn't. Like, we're just, we live in this realm of, like, we know. Yeah. Um, and I'm just like, I thought I did. Yeah. Um, and then experiences and things happened, and I'm like, okay, like, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I'm not, I'm just, I guess I'm not too concerned and I, and I think part of the deconstruction I have is growing up in the assemblies of God, there is this emphasis put on speaking in tongues. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we are told that speaking in tongues is the first um, initial gift of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Right. Um, and I remember as a kid, like I saw that I want to speak in tongues. Right. I want what I'm missing. I want it, I want it, I want it. And then, as you get older, you encounter, I mean, this is my still being very much in the in the faith, uh, you encounter thing, people like Billy Graham. Yeah. He was doing all of this great work within the Christian world, and you're like, well, how is he not filled with the Holy Spirit just because he's a Southern Baptist and he doesn't believe speaking in tongues? I see. I see. That doesn't make any sense to me. And why is it that mm-hmm. all of these people that I do know that are speaking in tongues that have this initial gift are just judgmental, like, jerks. Me being one of them, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So you start looking and you're like, okay, so they have all these doctrines, right, and these theologies, but there's no real, like, it's just yeah. you look at it and you're like, oh, you just have the right beliefs to protect you. Yeah. But, like, there's not really a transformation. I see. Or yeah. maybe, you know, yeah. the way that you treat the person, uh, the gay person, or mm. the the um, immigrant, um, yeah. the foreigner, um, the way you uh, treat the person that's pagan, if you want to use that term, <laughs> um, the person who, the atheist, the way you treat these people does not speak Christ. Mm. And so at the end of the day, I don't care if you do or you do not believe in a physical resurrection or if it's a real thing or not a real thing. I know that is blasphemy and heretical. Um, If you're not living your life in a way that speaks resurrection. Yeah. Yeah, so that that would you, that is what you would say is the crux issue, correct? Mm-hmm. But I I think one reaction I guess I have to that is more because I hear the way in which it's not just even your circumstance, but individuals are raised in these kind of spiritual contexts, these theological households, however you want to say it, uh, church environments, homes, blah blah blah, blah all those things considered. Um, it's not so much a spiritual fanaticism, but there are claims that you're confronted with that are spiritually fantastic, and I think when you actually marinate those truths with history with general experience and you see man that stuff's actually pretty far off than what's here and so i think there's a kind of distance or maybe a kind of disassociation with you know again it it, it prompts you to ask those questions like okay what's 
actually here? What's really going on behind all this? Is there, are they bringing something to the table that they're not really seeing? You know, like in other words, that even though there, there's a passion that gets up and he has such a, a dignity and integrity about him, that there's something unconscious he's actually doing he's not really seeing. He has a motivation, uh, a disposition, an attitude towards the world that's really uh, keeping his spine sort of erect before the audience, but he's not, there, he's, a, he's a stuffed shirt. He's a bag of hot air. He's, uh, I don't know, there, there's a way in which there's no actual spiritual bone marrow in that kind of stuff. I mean, does that kind of resonate? Trying to, uh, trying to understand the question more, um, if you maybe expand yeah. it a little bit. So I think, I think that there are spiritual leaders, prominent Christian evangelicals, people who, let's just say evangelicals, who proclaim the faith. There's a way in which they try to bring themselves into the public conversation. But even that, that public standing up, this, there's something else going on that they're not seeing. There are underlying, perhaps, be it psychological, moral, um, there's other desires that they're trying to satisfy than what's really there spiritually. So I, I guess the, here's where I'm coming from. So when I hear you, you talking more about the assemblies of God and talking in tongues, like I don't come from that kind of theological background. Like I don't think that stuff is the case. <laughs> um, so I think I could imagine someone being in a, in a household, a kind of home where they're brought up in that theology, but when they actually go out into the world and experience individuals who don't have that spirit of, or that power of the Holy Spirit, they're not really affected in the way in which they think they are. But actually, there's something else there. Maybe it's just, again, not fanaticism, but it's like just a kind of zealotry. There's just there's something about human nature that they're bringing to the table um, that causes you to be like, huh, maybe... They being the people from the outside? Uh, they being like a spiritual leader, a pastor, whoever is doing the... The evan the uh, evangelical. Well, evangelical yeah, yeah. Work. I mean, I, I guess. I mean, I would say that they're. I mean, of course, they're bringing something to the table. I think everybody's bringing something to the table. Yeah. You know, yeah. whether we feel like they're allowed to bring something to the table or not, or we don't make space, people are always bringing something to the table. It just may not be the table that we want them to bring to. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's multiple tables. Yeah. You know. But have you ever seen like a, let's say like a teacher, a speaker, or a church where they have such an impact where you see their services and you see the way in which their audience or the, the congregation is swayed and you think, how? There is something else here. Right, a, then, col a, collective, a, a collective group thinking. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe there's something about human, this is just, if I were to observe that thing, and these are the kind of questions I would ask, I'd be like, well, maybe there's something about human nature here. Maybe there's other interests, other desires, other motivations that he's actually appealing to. Right, okay, and so that gets into that gets into the aspect of paganism and what somebody who... Mm. Oh, somebody asked me, who one of the new hosts says, at work, and she goes... <laughs> I got that deep, huh? Um, she's like, so, like, are you still religious? And I go, hmm. Well, you know, I think everybody's religious. Because at the end of the day, religion is a sense of uh, patterns and habits and rituals. Um, but then they got cut off. So, yeah, I think that, that there is a psychological thing that is being addressed whether you know it or not. 
as that like certain pastor that you know. I see. I see. So, yeah. I don't know if that answers the question. No. Yeah. Yeah. I, and again, this gets back to this idea that like so when we're talking about the resurrection, you know, there's this French theologian that says succinctly, uh, Jaroslav Pelikan, and he said that if Christ has resurrected from the dead, nothing else matters. If Christ has not resurrected from the dead, nothing else matters. Mm-hmm. So there's a way in which I think that the resurrection has such a centeredness to it. Right. Where Christianity, God, that whole conversation, whatever the objective facts or details of it are, you know, the cosmological argument, the argument from design, minimal facts about the resurrection, all this stuff that apologists like to put under their belt, none of that matters unless Jesus, I think anyway, actually rose from the dead. You know? Because it's like, what are we talking about? But I think that leads into... That as humans, we live on stories. Mm. And that a story, like culturally, uh, culturally, need to be true for us to make an impact. So it's mm. almost like, no, you need that. I was talking to um, Jordan yesterday about um, Santa Claus. You know, we got a daughter. And Santa Claus is very real. And, and, um, oh, does Sparrow believe in Santa Claus? Yeah. You know, in the Tooth Fairy. Sparrow has a thing right now uh, where she writes letters to the Tooth Fairy. Hmm. Uh, every, like, every other night, she writes a letter to the Tooth Fairy. Puts every it other night. Yeah, like, when, when I have her, because her mom and I split custody. But um, when I have her, she writes uh, a letter to the Tooth Fairy. And it all started when she came home from school one day, and she had, like, five uh, seashells that she got from her school playground and she's really excited about going to bed early and I wasn't fighting that um, about her wanting to put these seashells under the pillow so that she could get five dollars from the tooth fairy because she wanted to trick the tooth fairy uh, and to make the tooth fairy believe that they were teeth Um, and so I'm here with this very very uh, this moment of what do I do with this first of all Tooth fairy doesn't come uh, unless there's teeth. But also, so I'm like, so I have to explain to her, but I can't be like, tooth fairy's not going to come. Tooth fairy doesn't, you know, or tooth fairy's not real. No. You know, in a six-year-old mind, this is a magical thing. So I'm like, how do I, as a parent, how do I work with this? How do I build this creativity and, and this magic without denying it and without, like, shooting, like, taking away what she's trying to do here. Yeah. Um, so I explain and I say, hey, the tooth fairy may not come because these are not real teeth and the tooth fairy only comes when there's real teeth. Right? I wanted her to be able to play with what she had. Mm. And so the next day the tooth fairy doesn't come <laughs> and then she goes to her mom's house and then that following day that she's in my house like two or three, two days later, there's a dollar under her pillow that night and she's like whoa what (laughs) how did that happen and I was like you know the tooth fairy came and we talked and uh, we we, you you can't lie to the tooth fairy that's not a good thing but we thought that the creativity and you thinking outside of the uh, the box deserved a little praise Mm. and so the tooth fairy and I agreed that we would give you a dollar together so to encourage that creativity but you can't Lie to the tooth fairy, but this whole and this has happened. This happened. This has happened months ago, and there's just been this ongoing thing back and 
four of her writing letters to the Tooth Fairy, and the most recent one was Dear Tooth Fairy, uh, I'm trying to be kind to uh, and trying to be mm. nice and kind to other people. And so Tooth Fairy writes a letter back and says something along the lines of the it's good that you're trying to be kind when people it, it's hard when people to be kind when people hurt you but people hurt you because they're hurt mm. and that in those moments it's always best to return that hurt with love because in the end love is the most powerful u- force in the universe even mm. in fairy land yeah uh, I love you, love the tooth fairy. Yeah. And so that, it gives me as a father these moments to, uh, to, to build and to grow and to teach a lesson that maybe I as a father, that she may be a little off because I'm just dad and it's fair, you gotta be kind to people. But with this magical beam, it helps her mm. to make sense of it. Yeah. There's magic there. But we know, as adults, mm. that the Tooth Fairy doesn't exist. Yeah. That the Tooth Fairy is not real. Sorry for the children listening to that. Maybe you should put a disclaimer at that point. They've, um, they've listened for an hour and a half on deconstruction, and then they got to the Tooth Fairy, and they're like, wow, I'm upset. <laughs> so, you know, I would hate for a kid to walk in at that point. Um, because it's, it is such a magical thing, right? Sure. Um, I, I can disrupt a person's thoughts on God. I have a much harder time disrupting a child's um, mm. worldview. Um, mm. But but going back, Santa Claus. Well, Santa Claus is real. She's no. I'm like, well, no, Saint Nick. Saint Nick was a real individual that went around helping like kids that were in orphanages, and then the name of Saint Nick became this Santa Claus. Right, it became this magical, mythical type of being that kids believe in. And then what happens is that there's just like, oh, it just doesn't exist. And then people fall apart. And then as we get adults, we just lose all sense of magic. Like, there's no magic, right? But if you look at it through a process, individual existed. The individual, the story, what they did became amplified to... Uh, the story and then it's taught as real but if we can talk t- teach that there is a transition mm. uh, and there's a there's a culture uh, that existed uh, that exists a, a tribe of, of people and I cannot remember where uh, what where they're at or where they were at but uh, this tribe would um, teach the kids about that the things they do that the gods are watching mm. And that the gods are always watching them, and they would come out at night, and they would have these masks on, and these kids would believe that, oh, they would take, they would take a doll of the god, of whatever god they had, and put it on the shelf, and that same, and it was just ingrained in them that that doll was God, their god, and was watching them, mm. and it would keep them in check, almost like the idea of the elf on the shelf. And from if I'm not mistaken, that's where the idea. Of elf on the shelf comes from mm. is this idea that this this being of God is watching you. But as the kids got older, they would take the kids when they became in their culture adults or into this form of adultism would take them into 
uh, the dark into the night, uh, physical, dark, not metaphorical, right. and their gods would be there with their mask on, and then they would all take, the uncles and the tribemen and the dads would take their mask off, revealing that oh, they yeah. were the gods, but they would pass it on and say, now you I've heard this, yeah. are this. Mm. And so there's almost like this transition of like, the story of Jesus, Jesus, real individual, not not real individual because the Bible says real individual because there's data saying that Jesus existed, physical human being. But then there's this aspect of things that are tied around Jesus yeah. that make him divine. Yeah. And then there's a, these stories that are ingrained and they are real. Yeah. But it seems like there has to be that we at some point have to take one and that's where I'm getting at with the thing of resurrection it's not about right. if it you may have to be taught that it's real mm. or whatever your culture faith or whatever your story is yeah. you need to be taught that it's real and there's ideas because what's important is actually the ideas that they're clinging to the, the way we interact with each other the way we treat each other yeah. um, not necessarily if Santa exists or a tooth fairy exists yeah. or if this resurrection actually did happen or not. Yeah. No, I think that's a fascinating point. It reminds me of, you know, for example, Kierkegaard talked about his three stages of existence. There's the aesthetic, the ethical, and the religious. So that whenever you're training kids in religion or bringing them up in the religious, you start out in the aesthetic uh, categories which they know they're loved by God. Very, those simple truths, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, that, that kind of thing. And then you work up to the ethical talking about different imperatives, responsibilities, consequences, etc. And you work your way into the religious, more dogmatic, um, them actually relating to God as an individual. And I think the way in which I hear, I actually think that that's actually a great thing that you've, just the tooth for example, you named the spirit. I thought that was, that was fantastic. There's a way in which you provided the aesthetic or the imaginative and you even coupled it with the ethical. You gave it a kind of directive structure so that it's not just her mind or her intellect involved, but her will as well. And I think there's a way in which that can be perfected. But the radical link um, in that relationship between intellect and will is in her relation to the tooth fairy, which of course is a poetic, mythical construction. But the link that matters is an actual relation. It's when Sparrow, for example, marries her intellect with her will, but finds that marriage within the unition of an actual relationship with God. So I think, I think the activity you've done, for example, is kind of like that old gold miner activity where they sift through the dirt mm -hmm. and a gold nugget would kind of appear. Mm -hmm. The same kind of thing, but there has to be a necessitating link. I don't say necessitating, and, and an actualizing link between the desires, aspirations, wants, and the things she does, and these inner movements, and they're connected with um, a grounded reality. So I think the way in which Jesus, if he did actually resurrect, there's a sense in which he kind of cast a shadow upon history. Um, and I, again, this is getting into the details. I could dispute the historical facts of, you know, did Dionysus have this many followers? Was he actually born of a virgin? Was Horus... Um, you know, actually in this way similar to Jesus, blah, 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 blah. Um, I would say I don't think so. 
it doesn't interest me to make those clarifications because I think, I, like like you, I don't care so much to correct that objective side of things. I just think that we both agree that there's a certain perfective aspect in that edu in that educational part. Mm -hmm. But I think what matters is the, is the actual relationship, you know, because there's a sense in which if when she comes to find out that you know the tooth fairy isn't real, which we all go through this, <laughs> for those of us that believe in it, uh, it's upsetting. Yeah, you know, we rebel. Um, yeah, there's a it, there's a bitterness to it as yeah. well. Now, put that's a small scale with Santa Claus, Easter Bunny. Now you put it to God, um, and this actual relationship just becomes a mythical structure. It's a poetiz it's a poetiz poeticization of their feelings. It's yeah. it's uh, it's just imaginative. But I would, I would even say that the idea of God or what we're talking about God is even heavier. Um, because there's so much connected to not just right and wrong and aspects of ethics, mm. um, but damnation. Mm. Like, no one's being taught. A kid may get upset that Santa Claus isn't real, and they're going through their little existential crisis as a kid, um, and they'd be like, oh, I hate you, mom and dad, because you lied to me. And I know the people that are still like, my mom and dad lied to me. And I'm like, mm, your troubles are a little bit deeper than Santa Claus, okay? Let's, let's just clear that. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't think it's intentional that mm -hmm. anybody saying Santa Claus is real or the tooth fairy is real is doing that intentionally to disrupt and, and, and to hurt their kid. Of course. I don't think people that believe in God are doing this or teaching God are doing this in a way that's like we're trying to harm you. I think it's all done out of we want to protect mm. Um, mm. you from whatever. The aspect of God is so heavy, though, when it comes to belief in God or the death and resurrection of Jesus and these things because there is eternal damnation that is tied to it, which is not tied to Santa Claus. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. it winds up having a whole different yeah, right, right. weight to it. You're absolutely right. Um, this may sound controversial to a lot of <laughs> people listening, but say it. Well, it's like, you know, I do believe in an eternal hell, but it, it's one of those things where, like, I won't comment on it in the sense of I don't... I'll say, in my evangelism, evangelization I can never say those words um, I don't mention it you know I think there's a, a lot of evangelists will emphasize that they need to know that the wrath of God abides on their head kind of thing if they, unless they know that this anger unless yeah unless they know that this anger um, is against them by way of their sin and trying to inflict that guilt on them you're not going to have an effective apologetic if you will um and I would say I don't. I could. I could do just as fine without ever mentioning how. Yeah, I, I don't think that's true. I don't think that uh, psychologically, that's that. From a psychology standpoint, that's true at all. <laughs> it actually would cause more harm, and does cause more harm. Mm. You know. Yeah. Um, to t say you know. Yeah, I've, I've never gone C.S. Lewis's full route, but I liked his idea that hell doesn't have to describe a literal place, but just talks about this infinite separation from God. And even Aquinas gives this beautiful, I mean, I know we're talking about hell, and to say beautiful is probably very strange of me, 
But he gives his power at it. <laughs> well, he gives this beautiful language where how when God unites things all to himself, kind of at the end of time, he talks about how hell in that act of unition is is the very torment of the sinners. Because by their being united with God, they're unwilling to do so, and that precisely is their torment. Right. And that's kind of a more description of hell that that I've heard from. There's also the idea that hell is, I mean, <laughs> we can go over this uh, mm. topic, um, that hell is a, is a refinery, you know, mm-hmm. and that just like um, coal in a, in a, in a refinery is, is, is burnt, it's yeah. getting rid of all of the, the, the dirt and the uh, to get to that, that, uh, diamond or to get to whatever's covering uh, the gold up, the dirt that's covering gold up. Yeah. Um, that hell is that. That hell is a cleansing, a very painful cleansing mm. that we must go through, whether in this life or the next life or mm. whatever, but it's not and can feel eternal because I can tell you that as somebody who's gone through a 14 year Dark Night of the Soul, because apparently I'm missing something here. Um, that it feels that that sense of numbness, because there's a numbness that happens, feels like forever. Am I ever going to get out of this? And I know that isn't to say it's the same thing. Right, right. But it could be that when you're in that state, if that state exists, that it feels eternal. Yeah. Uh, until you get out of it, yeah. But that it's not the end all, and that there is. I mean, that's just a, that's just one of the thoughts behind it. Um, sure, sure. You know, so yeah. no. I mean, I, I I don't know if you're familiar with that idea that like in this life, this is the what is it? This is the closest and the farthest you'll ever be from hell, mm-hmm. kind of thing. True. Um, and so that a lot of those sort of experiences that we have, I like this word a lot to describe this. That we have. Uh, purgative experiences, mm-hmm. purgative pur- purgatory, so that we're kind of in this in-between, like we're stuck, and I think a lot of times in that feeling stuck, we feel sense, an acute sense of longing. I don't know if you feel this in your own life, but like you find yourself in a sense of want, of wanting to be otherwise, or just, I don't know, there's a... It's even that I'm a four on the Enneagram. That's my old system. Um... Well, then good. I think that shows my point then. Yeah. Um, I'm acutely aware of this thing that's missing that <laughs> I don't know where the hell it's at. Yeah. Well, but I think I think that's important. And it's like, you already know this, but it's like you follow that. It either is perfecting in the sense of it brings you, this is what I think, it brings you upward to God or brings you further away away from God. Right. And Aquinas actually said very interestingly of the demons that they themselves are constantly undeveloping or undoing themselves. So that they're constantly in a state of desire and longing, because they'll never fully experience the they'll never experience the fullness of their being, because they're not united with God. Um, and I anyway, I get that more so from Kierkegaard, which I think is a radical idea that all all longing in itself, if it's not directed towards God, has a kind of dem, demonic flair to it. Not to say that someone who is in a state of longing outside of God is demonic, but the longing is, of course, brings you closer to the lover, or you get tired, you get restless, you yeah. you sigh more, you know, because the lover is gone. 
you know. Or maybe the lover's never gone. Maybe lover, maybe lover's always there, and we just don't always see that. Mm. I agree with that. Kind of asleep to that. We, you know, I agree um, with that. You know, and this this can go into so many aspects of you know atonement and and what the point if there was a death and resurrection and the point of Jesus and where I'd probably veer off into different ideas if I was to um, still be a if I were to go back and, and to become a pastor mm. my ideas are kind of here but you know but also the question everything every other day <laughs> and um, that's just the reality of it that's my reality my reality is that I just I don't know all the time and that these are good conversations and they're fun conversations and I love them mm. um, they're one of the few things that actually excite me and bring joy to me during uh, years that have just nothing yeah. nothing brings excitement and joy to me uh, I love I love love dialogue hmm. I love conversation uh, sometimes that conversation that dialogue can be heated um, but I'm always open to it. Um, I, I want to learn. Yeah. Um, I mean, that to me sounds more like a clue about yourself. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, what do you think? Like, is, it, is that disposition in you? Does that does that make you curious? Like, maybe this desire points me towards some kind of vocation. I don't know what it is. I would I would say so. I mean, you know, going back to what I said earlier, there was this idea that I wanted to be a pastor since I was like eight or nine years old. Mm. So it's not like. You know, and the, the ideas of old don't just evaporate. Yeah. You know, there's always... I, 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 I've questioned a lot uh, when it comes to my faith and, 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 and Christianity and God and where it all fits together. And I can't just completely throw it out. Mm. Um, mm. There, you know, a lot of it makes sense. There's a lot about atheism that makes sense to me that I'm like, yeah, 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 that makes sense. Um, cool, I don't disagree with that. Which is a troubling thing because people want to be definite about things. Yeah. If that makes sense. They want to know. Mm. Uh, no, like, I just know that this is, or I know that this isn't. Yeah. I don't want to be told otherwise. And if you tell me otherwise, I'm going to fight that. Yeah. Because we want to be definite about things. I want to be definite about things. Yeah. Which makes it really, really hard knowing that you're not definite about things, but you want to be definite about things. Yeah. And you're just caught in this paradigm, this economy that exists inside of your head, inside mm -hmm. of your heart, constantly. And you've got to wrestle with that constantly. I mean, my middle name is, <laughs> is, is Jacob, you I, know, I know which is liar. But Jacob is became Israel is the one who wrestles with God. It's, it seems like, you know, that mm. when in the story in the Bible, when jo uh, Jacob, you know, fell asleep on the rock uh, and he had the dream of the ladder reaching to heaven and he, um, not to be confused with Jacob's ladder with Robin Williams, God rest his soul, love <laughs> that man. Um, I've never heard of that movie. That's a movie? Dude, it's a great Oh, no, What Dreams May Come. Oh, okay. What Dreams May Come. I haven't seen that one either. Um, it was, yeah. Right, what dreams might come? That's, that's, that, that's the movie. But it's about the ladder and that whole thing. Oh, is it really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, Sweet. Sweet. 
Yeah, like it's that. really, really, really good movie. Really, really good. You would love it. Um, is it like? Is it like? Is it biblically based? No. So it's basically about his wife uh, is a painter, and um, she dies, and she winds up going into purgatory, hell, purgatory hell inside of her painting, and he has a dream or or something and he goes into the painting to save her to snatch her out of i vaguely know this movie anyway that's yes so yes yeah um i have an image of him in like a lake in my mind yes something like him anyway yeah okay um which i think may be the cover of the movie uh it just just hit me yeah so anyway um jacob he falls asleep head is on this rock and uh, he has this dream. And in the dream, there's a ladder, and the angel, an angel of the good Lord, uh, dislocates his hip. And he's like, stop. And he's like, no, I'm not going to stop until my blessing, until I receive what is mine. Yeah. And that just seems to be my life. That there is this ongoing wrestling with God. Fascinating. And God existing, not existing. All of it yeah. that I cannot yeah. walk away from mm. because I know there's something there. No matter how much it wants to be like, no, there's nothing there. This doesn't exist or this does exist. Yeah. Like, it's almost like there's this aspect of the moment that I think that I have it understood. Mm. There's something that just comes and disrupts and it's just like, yeah, no. Mm-hmm. But is it more of a, is it more of an intellectual kind of like, wiping away, or is it something all you? All of the above. Yeah. 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 You know, I wonder if if this experience is, is in your case, um, if as you're having this relationship with God, your life goes on, you find yourself just in this conversation, and when people try to come into your life to understand that better, there's a way in which you kind of can't communicate it um, because. When they ask you this question, there's a sense which you fall into yourself and you're like, you kind of get dizzy because there's this infinite abyss <laughs> where you're just like, man, you don't even know what you just asked. Yeah, no, because, yeah, no, absolutely, because people will be like, do you believe in God? And I'm like, oh, that's a very loaded question. Mm. What do you mean by God? Yeah. Um, or, um, To use an example, um, Jordan, the girlfriend, doesn't necessarily. She's very science based. Um, she's, I mean, she, she's not a Christian machine, right? No. Okay. Um, she's very science based. It's what she studied in school. Oh, physics, uh, right? I think. Uh, uh, ecology. Mm. Um, uh, I don't know exactly what the degree was in. I know she studied bees. Uh, but, um, <laughs> don't be mad that we're not getting it, Jordan. <laughs> yeah. Do pay attention to everything you tell me. Um, ecology, for the most part. But, yeah. but, 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 but science. I got you. You know, and um, we've had this discussion. We had a discussion one day, one night, and we won't get into it, where she actually... Uh, was at my house and she actually left and walked away uh, because it got really uh, heated and that's where it goes back to where 
uh, my old habits aren't 